from RTHK. Welcome to this week's Hong Kong Heritage, which comes from Bell's Eyes Park in London. There used to be a three-storey Victorian house here with an attic where, in the 1930s and during the Second World War, there were famous Chinese writers and poets living in different parts of the house. These included Chiang Yi, but my focus today is on Xiong Shiyi and his wife Dimia. Shung was born in Nanchang City and was already a well-known translator of British writers into Chinese by the time he came to England. In 1934, he would publish a play, Lady Precious Stream, which became so successful in Britain that a series of British Prime Ministers and Queen Mary came to see it. But life was not always easy for the Shungs. It was a time of racial stereotypes and prejudice as Shi Yi and Dimia worked to emphasise a more modern China and the writers who came with that modernity. After England, Shung Shi Yi would come to Hong Kong. In this week's programme, Diana Ye, who has written about the Shungs, joins me with fellow author Paul French as we walk around the streets of Belzai's Park. Diana Ye is the author of The Happy Shungs, China and the struggle for modernity. We are standing on a corner of Upper Park Road and Haverstock Hill in Belsize Park. And this is the area where the Shungs, along with a whole group of Chinese intellectuals and artists, used to live and work. How do you feel when you're standing here? I feel like it's really incredible, actually, you know, that these histories have disappeared. For me, it was really a groundbreaking moment in my life to actually discover these histories and discover that there was this whole group of Chinese intellectuals living here because I was always in search for a sense of my own heritage in a country in Britain where I live and grew up and never had this idea that I actually could have a heritage here. So it was really, really meaningful to be able to stand in this place where I know that there is this really rich history of incredible cultural exchange um, and political activity on these very streets. Let's take a walk down. So I'm with Diana Ye and author Paul French today, walking along this part of, would I describe it as Belzai's Park here? Yes, Belzai's Park. Now, you were able to perhaps explore your own heritage through this, well, what was a literary circle, but also uh, a group of intellectuals who provided their own magazine to publish their own articles, but were also part of the wider literary and intellectual group. I mean, these people were on the BBC and they would also mix and connect with literary figures established in Britain as well. If you can tell me, first of all, through sheer serendipity, 
how you fell into this. Yeah, okay. So I was doing some research for my doctoral study on the artistic activities of the Chinese in Britain, really just trying to find any artists or writers that I could locate. And I was having a really difficult time. So in the end, I managed to find a copy of Shung's play, Lady Precious Stream, in SOAS Library. I was doing a whole load of research trying to find out more about this unknown author. I didn't have any luck, but I was sitting with a friend, Grace Lau, who's an artist photographer in the photographer's gallery. I remember the moment really clearly. And I was telling her about my difficulties finding out about this writer. She said, so what's his name? And when I told her, she was like, oh, the Shungs, Uncle Shung. Yes, my family, we're friends with his family and I can put you in touch with his son. So, you know, from then on, I managed to access the Shung family. We created kind of a close bond and I was able to do research and collect the memories of the Shung family. I interviewed two of the brothers and one of the daughters and Grace Lau herself also was a very, because she was such close friends, she grew up literally at the same time as Dei Yi so she was always around the Shungs and I managed to um, gather some brilliant stories from her memories as well. You come to Shung Yi via his arguably most successful work, Lady Precious Stream. So this is a play which, well, in modern terms, goes viral. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's just fascinating. When Shung first came over, he wanted to actually write a modern Chinese play. That was his ambition. He had already, by the time he had come, translated an autobiography of Benjamin Franklin. He had translated the works of um, H.G. Wells. So he had a really, really good grasp of English literature and he really wanted to write a modern realist play set in China. Part of his ambition was because he wanted to demonstrate to Western audiences that there was a modern Chinese place, that China wasn't just the land of sort of exotic dragons and plum blossoms, you know, the, the stereotype image that Western audiences sometimes had of China. But in the end, he sought advice from the professors around him. And he was having tea one day with Allardyce Nicholl and his wife. Allardyce Nicholl was um, a professor at one of the London universities. And they were having tea together and Allardyce Nicholl and his wife were saying, well, Shung, there's no point in you writing a modern play. Actually, he wanted to write something on Shakespeare, I think. And they said, don't do that. Do something really Chinese and traditional. And this was the same advice that he actually got from George Bernard Shaw when he sent his modern realist play, Maman, to Shaw. Shaw said, English audiences aren't ready for this. Try something really traditional and Chinese. So that's when he went on to decide to draw on this traditional Peking opera, something that seems very Chinese in that sense, and to sort of adapt it for the English stage. So this is Lady Precious Stream. So can you tell me more about that? initial production? Yeah, so it was put on by Nancy Price at the Little Theatre in 1934. And where's that? Uh, on the Strand, I believe. It was on the Strand. It was just off the Strand, yeah. Yeah, so it was a, it was a small, as you know, little theatre. <laughs> and I think Nancy Price was quite well known for putting on slightly unusual productions. And Shung had had quite a lot of trouble to get his play produced. But Nancy Price saw the special quality of it and she said to Shung, I think this is going to be the greatest success that London has had for some time. And it was. So, like, overnight it was a complete phenomenon. It was 
like acclaimed by critics and writers and became really the high society theatre show to go and see. It became really also important in terms of the political world. So um, successive prime ministers, the entire diplomatic corps went yeah, to see it. I see Winston Churchill went to see it. Winston Churchill went to see it. I mean, it was just incredible. But part of why it was so significant was that it was about representations of China in a particular moment. And that's why it had so much significance within the British society, but also within the political sphere. Where that block of flats is now, that was where 50 Upper Park Road was, which is now gone. And 50 Upper Park Road would have been? 50 Upper Park Road is where the Xiongs moved to, uh, first of all, and uh, I think they were there first. And then they were joined by the poet Wang Lishi, who was known as Shelley Wang, a well-known poet in China, and his wife, Lu Jingqing, who's also a well-known poet. They were a husband and wife poet team. They didn't have much money. They lived in the attic. The Xiongs had uh, some of the, most of the, the buildings here are Victorians, so they're three stories with an attic and a basement, I mean, big houses, and they had some of the main floors. And then Chang Yi came in 1935, and Chang Yi initially took the basement of their house. For so, a while. author Chang Yi? Yeah, the author and artist, the silent traveller, as he was known, Chang Yi. So, they were all living in this house, and lots of people were visiting them. The famous translator, uh, Yang Chang Yi, who went to Oxford and married an English woman, daughter of a missionary, Gladys, who became Gladys Yang. Anyone who's read any of the old Beijing foreign languages translations of the Chinese classics will have read their translations. They would come to lunch all the time. Um, Xiong, of course, was with his wife, Dimia, who was a writer in her, her own right and, and, and an educated Chinese woman, which was not overly common uh, for that generation. And they had children, one born here in Britain. So there were all this group. Xiao Qian, who was also a journalist from China, who ended up being the only Chinese foreign correspondent in, in Britain during the war, covered D-Day, the only Chinese journalist to cover D-Day. He came and lived here for a time. And so people were coming and going, you know, it was an open house. And Dimia always remembers that, you know, it was a real chore having to cook because apart from trying to get all the ingredients she wanted for Chinese food, even in a what at that time was a very cosmopolitan area like this by London standards, it was difficult. And people would just come and Xiong would kind of expect her to, you know, just lay on this kind of ever rolling banquet for all these people that were coming down from Oxford and Cambridge, these intellectuals that he knew, various friends who were dropping in, other Chinese who were passing through. London. I mean, there were exhibitions in 1935, the big uh, exhibition at the Burlington Galleries of Chinese Art and Liu Hai Xu and other big Chinese artists came to London at that time. And of course, they all came here to Upper Park Road and they were just rolled up expecting food, you know, and <laughs> expecting conversation. So it was a very busy, buzzy place with people coming and going all the time, as Dimia remembers it in her autobiography. Is that in the early 1950s, I think? Yeah. Yes, that's right. So it was published in 1950 and in that autobiography, she really spells out you know how difficult her life was in um, the UK having to create all these um, sumptuous feasts for <laughs> this endless stream of Chinese intellectuals students and artists who would come and visit I mean for her it was just a massive change in her life she had grown up in essentially a landowning family very unusual she so was from Nanjiang yeah. yes she was very well educated and was a poet in her own right. In China, she had never 
entered the kitchen. In her life, she had had servants the whole time to do everything for her. And suddenly, in England, um, she was thrown into this position where she would have to cater to hundreds of um, students, not even knowing how to cook Chinese food, not knowing how to use yeah. kitchen implements and not being able to find any ingredients. In the end, what's interesting is these Chinese ladies, uh, there ended up a whole group of them who were the wives of these intellectuals and artists who ended up having these kind of mahjong dinners and feasts and sort of competing against each other for who could create the most lavish meal on sort of the, the least ingredients available. <laughs> That's very interesting. She tells a very funny story in her... Um in her autobiography, where she changes all the names and everything, yeah. but I mean, it's basically her autobiography called Flowering Exile. And she talks about when they first arrived, they get off the boat at Southampton and, and they come up and, and, and they're here in Hampstead and they're sort of with the children, some of the, the her, her older children were, were sort of cognizant when they arrived here. And they sort of come down in the morning and there's this sort of moment of shock that there isn't going to be breakfast prepared. There is None of these things are going to happen. Shung's off. He's, he's already, you know, a celebrity almost, you know, the translator of J.M. Barry, the author of Peter Pan. He's writing his plays. He's, he's starting to get a name for himself. And, and also he's, he's very famous for having wandered around wearing often Chinese gowns and everything. Whereas most of the others that stayed here, Xiao Chen, Chang Yi, Wang Li Shi and the others are always pictured in Western western clothes but he sort of cultivated this more scholarly aura and, and they come down to breakfast and they're just like what's going to happen and she has to explain to the children that um, we're going to have to make our own breakfast basically this is this is just the way it's going to be now and so it was a real culture shock for them given that within a few years once the war started here i mean they couldn't go back to china because of the war in china in 1937 but in 1939 as london kids they were evacuated right and there's you know she tells a story of these kids all going down to king's cross station or wherever and they're all on the platform and there there she is with these chinese kids and there's some confusion as to how to write their names on the on the tags that went on the kids so they didn't get lost when they got out to the countryside so they're living this whole london life but it's a, she, she admits it's a massive culture shock when they get here yes totally i mean can we go right back to their early upbringing so both i mean they they do grow up both she and her husband grow up near one another both from landowning families although in his case so in Xiong Xiyi's case, his father had squandered the money that the family had. That's right. Their families were close enough. Xiong attending her father's school, and that was the first time they kind of played with each other as children. And at the beginning, Dimia actually thought that who was this childish boy who's sort of making fun um, and didn't think much of him at all. But from that moment, Shung had fallen in love with her and had said, this is going to be my wife. Oh, that's incredible as a, as a young boy. But yes, he was apparently playing with a toy gun and she was yes, right. less than impressed. But So this is in Nanjiang. So what part of China? Southern China, near the Yangtze River. Jiangxi province. Jiangxi province. Yes. And uh, so they start off there, as you say. Um, now, he's born in 1902. In 1905, the imperial exam is scrapped. So this is, you know, when they come to London, I mean, I'm jumping a few decades mm -hmm. there, but they're trying to show this modernising China or this, this impression of modern China, because when they're growing up, China is changing very fast. 
Yeah, exactly. And this really is reflected in Shung's career. So you see that what he's trying to do is, in a sense, something very commercial. And that comes from his background of having translated movies um, in China. He used to work in the Shanghai cinema, translating subtitles for movies, and was really engrossed in that kind of like global culture, I suppose, that was emerging. And you can see this kind of impulse to be commercial and to be able to cater to the needs of Western audiences um, very early. He knows how to perform a particular type of Chineseness that is interesting um, to Western audiences. I'm talking here in Belsize Park with Diana Ye, the author of The Happy Xiongs, Performing China and the Struggle for Modernity. And Diana wrote this for Hong Kong University Press as part of the Royal Asiatic Society China in Shanghai series. So this is looking at people who are very influential in their time, very well known in their time, but you felt had sort of disappeared from history a little. Absolutely. I mean, they had completely disappeared from history. So when I was trying to look up Shi Shung at the beginning, I literally found no trace of him. If you look at, for example, the autobiographies of the great people that he knew, like George Bernard Shaw, I couldn't find any mention of him. So, yes, this is a chapter of history that has been erased, and I think that says quite a lot about the position of the Chinese in Britain and sort of how much work has to be done in order to uncover the, these histories and make them recognised as a part of national history. Because I think one of the really fascinating things around Shung as well is that Lady Precious Stream became really, really important during the war. And the Times had an article um, saying that it should have its place in history because of the huge role that the play had in terms of creating this vision of a kind of more peaceful and mannerly world during um, the war at a time when sort of British nerves were being shattered by their experience. So there was this open-air production of Lady Precious Dream during the war and it was put on three times during that period as a kind of a balm to soothe British nerves about their predicament. Tell me a little bit about the plotline. So the plotline of Lady Precious Stream is essentially a love story. It's about a high-born young maiden who falls in love with her father's gardener and obviously isn't able to, you know, doesn't have the approval of um, her family. So she runs away and ends up living in a cave for several years whilst he is taken away to fight in the western regions. Eventually they come together and meet again and they go through a kind of a strange sort of <laughs> play of kind of not being able to recognise each other even though we kind of do know they recognise each other and they live happily ever after together. So it's this kind of universal love story and I think that was something that also captured the imagination that it's so um, universally accessible. But at the same time, yes, there was this definitely this element of presenting an exotic China mm. to Western audiences. Yeah, because this is the interesting thing is that, you know, Paul, you were saying that um, you found in the BBC written archives, you know, these correspondences between some of these Chinese authors and also British ones. So, But it's, it's just also trying to establish the fact that they were very prominent for that time in Britain. Oh, yeah, they were popular. They, they, were, they were popular artists. And when we walk around here in, in Belsize Park, we see blue plaques, you know, that, that, that commemorate people. to all sorts of people, the Bauhaus artists, the Bauhaus architects that lived here, Piet Mondrian, the painter, Barbara Hepworth, 
um, the sculptor. They, they all lived around here, and, and so, so did lots of other people. We're just opposite Du Maurier House, which has a link to Daphne Du Maurier. Down the road is Orwell House. Uh, George Orwell, of course, worked in a bookshop just at the end of this road here, the Book Lover's Corner on, on South End Green in Hampstead. So it was an incredibly intellectual, vibrant, artistic area, and quite elite. Not, not everyone was as famous then as they, they are now. They're not, they weren't quite as canonical as they are now in British culture. But these guys were arguably more popular. You know, Chang Yi was doing massive book signings at Hatchard's on Piccadilly. His exhibitions were in galleries on Bond Street. Shung is connected to everyone. He's the star of the Malvern Theatre Festival. I mean, in Diana's book, there's pictures of him meeting with Paul Robeson when he comes to London, with Anna Mae Wong, the actress, when he comes to London, with Mei Lung Fang, the legend of Chinese opera, when he comes to London. I mean, these guys, Shung particularly, knew everyone. They were connected in. This, of course, became very useful later when Japan invaded China and they started to do lots of work for China Relief and China United Relief Funds and so on. But they were connected in with everyone and not just stars that were visiting. They knew everyone who was involved in translation. They knew everyone at the British Museum, for instance, who was keeping and collecting works at the British Library. So they knew everyone who was involved in the, in the China world here, but they knew lots of other people and they were with big publishers. They, they exhibited at big galleries. Shung, as Diana has said, you know, uh, uh, his plays appeared on uh, notable theatres in London and Broadway and festivals around. And of course, Lady Precious Stream had an incredible afterlife just being performed all over the country by amateur dramatic societies, university dramatic societies. When we published Diana's book, the amount of people who came out the woodwork and said, when I was at university in the 50s or 60s, when the play was still produced and people could still wrap a bit of silk around themselves and call themselves Chinese in a play um, you know they were in performances of this this was a very important dramatic well, it became a, yeah it became work for people. on education curriculum wasn't it? yeah and I think like a lot of uh, and, and the BBC recorded it several times I mean they did at least two two recordings of it so I think that interestingly sometimes in our culture it is the people at the high end of culture if you like the elite end of culture who end up being remembered you know there was a book recently about Hampstead and all the people that have lived here the famous artists and so on and it didn't mention any of the Chinese and sometimes we tend to forget the people who were in their time the best sellers the popular ones the people that you know when Chang Yi did books about the new pandas that came to London Zoo in the, in the mid-1930s for children children loved them and the copies that I've seen in the London Library here in St James's are donated to the library by Princess Margaret right because um the young Queen Elizabeth and Princess Margaret, or the young Princess Elizabeth and Princess Margaret were, they loved it and they had Changi's books. So they have this, but then that sometimes tends to be forgotten. And we remember these people, you know, incredible architects, artists and writers that they are, but who are considered at the higher level of culture. They get the plaques, they get remembered in the academic books. And these guys, and Dimia and Lu Jingqing, because there, there were women in this group as well, Gladys Yang and so on, they get forgotten, slightly forgotten. They haven't got plaques. So do we need a, a blue plaque proper campaign in Hampstead to remember well, uh, the, the contribution of this Chinese community? This, this walk that we've just taken yes. you on around here is technically what's called the Camden Art Walk. And it walks around here and it tells you all and you can sort of scan your QR code and find out about Piet Mondrian and find out about Barbara Hepworth and find out about Laszlo Maholy-Nagy and the uh, famous Lawn Road Flats, which are just here, known as the Isacom building. You can find out all about those, but there's nothing at all 
on um, and associated people, Orwell and so on, but there's nothing at all on, on the Chinese. So that, that still is a sort of gap in Camden councils um, in, the, in their kind of art walk around here. But as I say, you know, often it's the populists who get forgotten and, and, and dismissed later on, and it's, you know, the elite artists who tend to get remembered, and that, that means we're only remembering a partial part of our culture. Lady Precious Stream is first, uh, you know, the play is published in 1934. Do you think it's stood the test of time? I mean, if, if you're going to do a theatre production now. I think that's a tricky one. Um, we've had many discussions over the years about potentially putting on um, a, a new version. I think there, there would need to be some updating. I mean, that again, but again, this is Sean's ingenuity, right? He really knows how to capture... The, the language of 1930s English middle classes and the whole play is written in that. Even though it was seen as an authentic Chinese play, you can see the kind of language that he's using. It's very idiomatic. Um, so in that sense, it is a little bit dated. <laughs> would need to be transposed, shall we say. But you know, going back to what Paul was saying in terms of the kind of popularity, I think that's correct. There were another group of artists who were connected to Ling Shuhua, a more a scholarly group who were associated with the Crescent Moon group who hung out with, you know, Virginia Woolf and the Bloomsbury um, lot. And they are recognised in history a little bit more, but quite rightly is Paul says, you know, Shung and Jiang Yi have not been. And the interesting thing about Shung is, I think even more than Jiang Yi, he was essentially a household name. Like he wrote for good housekeeping. He wrote for the women's journal. Country he was, life. yeah, this country life. He was like literally in all the mainstream magazines. And again, this was his doing. He was an absolutely phenomenal social networker and was able to speak to anyone, no matter who they were, the highest echelons of society to the average person on the street. So he was brilliant in that sense, in being able to cultivate his networks that enabled his success. His sort of journey to Britain begins, you know, right back when he's... I mean, I, I thought it was fascinating just how good he is at English right from the outset. And this was from studying movies at the beginning. Yeah, that's right. He worked in different movie theatres, translating subtitles for movies. And he absolutely adored the kind of whole new culture that was coming up yes because he runs movie theaters both That's in right. beijing and then yeah. shanghai mm -hmm. i thought that was also interesting yeah. the young white russian refugee women who were doing semi-nude sort of performances in the intervals yeah that's right i don't know what to say about that I think he was getting that at the Everyman Hampstead. I mean, one of, one of the things that they really liked here, I think, when they came here was that there's a, there's a very good um, Art Deco cinema at Belsize Park and then another very good cinema that showed lots of films from around the world, even back in the 1930s, up at Hampstead, which is still there, and they're both still cinemas. And they would go and see lots of films there. Lu Jingqing, who, who was the poet that lived up in the attic in um, 50 <laughs> Upper Park Road, I mean, she remembers going there and she would just pop in every time it was raining rather than get wet if she'd been up in Hampstead she'd just go in the cinema she found herself one day sort of going in and um, not many people in there obviously it was a wet afternoon and it was um, a Fu Manchu film mm. and of course you know she ended up sitting there and of course at the end when they get up everyone's kind of like uh, you know looking at her and, and experiencing you know making comments and things so, but they, they did love going around here this is a very cultural area there were lots for them to do they weren't intending to stay. They get stuck after 1937. And then, of course, they get really stuck after September 1939 when Britain goes to war with Germany. And then, of course, 
you know, they throw all of their efforts into supporting the idea of China and Britain as allies. Uh, there was no intention. They didn't come here to, li to live here for the rest of their lives, although ultimately Dimia did, I think. Right? She stayed here in this area all of her life. But, you know, we, we need to remember that that's part of the reason that we don't always think of them as a group, that, that they, they weren't here, they, they were intending to leave, they got stuck, and then after the war, well, sometimes a long time after the war, that they left and, and moved around a bit. And we just don't have a name for them. You know, in the BBC archives, there are letters between Xiong, who was hired by George Orwell, uh, who was running the Eastern Service of the BBC during the war, to make recordings that were then sent out to Hong Kong and Singapore before the fall of Hong Kong and the fall of Singapore. And they were broadcast on the radio stations there in Chinese. Xiong uh, Xiyi, where does he then move on to? He ends up going in 1955 to Hong Kong. Um, in a previous year, he had produced Lady Precious Stream in the first Hong Kong Arts Festival, I believe. And in 1955, he goes to move there where he decides that he's going to return to his first love, which is film, and produce a Chinese film version of Lady Precious Stream. Um, now, that actually is not a great success. He manages to get an all-Chinese cast, but in terms of the production, he has an issue with the dubbing of the English version to fit the Chinese length, and he cuts out all the pauses, which makes it an kind of Im impossible <laughs> production to actually watch, an unwatchable production. So he never manages to find a distributor. And so what does he end up doing in Hong Kong? In Hong Kong um, and later Taiwan, he does continue to write other novels and plays in Chinese, such as Lady on a Roof. He also adapts another popular opera, A Fighting Bride in Hong Kong, for performance in Cantonese. And the opera was on Rediffusion, the first television service in Hong Kong, with Xiong appearing between acts to provide commentary in English. Xiong Xiyi would eventually return to China, where he died in Beijing in the early 1990s, Dimya, his wife, would remain in London for the rest of her life. My thanks to Diana Ye and Paul French for the tour of Belsize Park. Diana Ye is the author of The Happy Xiongs, China and the Struggle for Modernity, available from Hong Kong University Press. Thanks for listening and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage. Night marks the end of one day and the start of another. Being alone could be lonely or a state of being at ease. Challenges are inevitable in life. Do they lead to pressure or motivation? Things can be seen from different angles. Talk with your family, friends or professionals or call the Social Welfare Department's hotline on 2343-2255. Consider different perspectives. Take a positive view. The broader your vision, the greater your success. The Guangdong, Hong Kong, Macau, Greater Bay Area includes Hong Kong, Macau, and nine cities of Guangdong Province. It is an international economic, cultural, and living hub that will bring you new opportunities. Major cross-boundary infrastructure is strengthening connectivity, so seize the opportunities. Explore and embrace the Guangdong, Hong Kong, Macau, Greater Bay Area. Visit bayarea.gov.hk for details. On Radio 3 Book Club, Lucy Worsley continues to read from Agatha Christie, a very elusive woman, her biography of the remarkable life of the Queen of Crime.
Today, she gives her take on the writer's mysterious 11-day disappearance. By the start of 1926, the Christies had settled into yet another new home, this time in Sunningdale, Berkshire. The successful authoress was now well into her 30s. In photos, Agatha is matronly, stately, still somehow Edwardian. To the public, it appeared as if Mrs Christie's life was going remarkably well. She'd had a new novel and two short story collections published that year. Rosalind, her daughter, was now aged six. Archie, her husband, had found work in the city. Meanwhile, Agatha was working. In the summer of 1926 came her greatest achievement yet, her sixth published novel, The Murder of Roger Ackroyd. In it, Poirot moves to an English village to spend a quiet retirement growing vegetable marrows. Instead, he's called upon to solve a fiendishly complex case. It's well known that Roger Ackroyd plays the most remarkable trick on the reader. And its brilliant twist caused something of a scandal. If it didn't break the rules, it certainly bent them. The Christies called their new house the Styles and expanded their household to four servants, plus a new employee, Charlotte Fisher, known as Carlo, who'd help Agatha with secretarial services and looking after her daughter, Rosalind. But soon after moving, Agatha's health took a turn for the worse. In April, her mother had died. Agatha's grief was compounded by the weakness that would now be exposed in her marriage. Archie, it turned out, simply wasn't able to offer any support. Previously so physically robust, Agatha began to suffer from insomnia. Then towards the end of the year, Archie blindsided his wife with the news that he was in love with someone else, a woman called Nancy Neal, and he wanted a divorce. Nancy was lively, chatty and young. On Friday the 3rd of December, Archie caught the train to work. He planned to be away with friends for the weekend. Carlo went up to London. That afternoon, according to Agatha, she'd driven Rosalind out to tea over the Surrey Hills. I was in a very despondent state of mind, she says. I just wanted my life to end. Passing by Newland's Corner, she saw a quarry and there came into my mind the thought of driving into it. However, as my daughter was with me in the car, I dismissed the idea at once. Agatha got home at about six. According to the staff, it was during the course of this dark, solitary evening that Agatha found out where Archie was and the identity of these friends he was visiting. She came to some kind of a decision. Late that evening, Agatha's servant saw her go to her daughter's bedroom and kiss the child before going out to her car and driving away into the darkness. When Carlo returned, she found a most distressing letter. Its contents remain unknown. One report claimed it read, I shall not be home tonight. More troubling was Agatha's reported need to get away from here and that my head 
is bursting. The next morning, the Stiles telephone rang. It was the police. Agatha's empty car, damaged, apparently in a crash, had been discovered on a road across the Surrey Hills. It's time to reveal what really